Hello, podcast listeners. For the next several weeks here on the show, we'll be taking a detour from our regular programming to highlight a series of interviews I conducted back in the fall. On October 25th and 26th of 2013, Wheaton College hosted an event co-sponsored by the American Bible Society. This was a conference organized by my friend Tim Beal, whom you may remember as a guest from our first season here on the show. The name of the conference was The Bible and Democracy in America, an Interconfessional Christian Conversation. The keynote speaker was the much-esteemed religion scholar Martin Marty, and featured a panel of guests drawn from both clergy and academia. Tim invited me to participate in the conference and encouraged me to bring my microphone. As a result, I got the chance to sit down with several of the participants and conduct extensive interviews about their work and their contributions to the discussions at the conference. So, for the next few weeks, I'll be highlighting those interviews here. I want to thank the staff of Wheaton College, as well as their campus radio station, WETN, for all the help they gave in making these interviews happen. I also want to thank Tim Beal of Case Western Reserve University for inviting me to participate in the conference. And finally, I want to give a shout-out to all the folks I met from the staff of the American Bible Society, who did so much work to put on a great conference. You can find out more about them at AmericanBible.org. And with that, let's start the show. From the studios of WETN on the campus of Wheaton College, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we present the first of our interviews from the Wheaton College Conference on the Bible and Democracy in America, presented by the American Bible Society, when we talk with University of Chicago historian Catherine Breckis. Later on the broadcast, Katie Scroggin discusses Martha C. Nussbaum's book, Political Emotions, Why Love Matters for Justice. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Uh, we're speaking today in the context of the Wheaton Conference that is co-sponsored with the American Bible Society on the Bible and Democracy in America. And we're talking to the various panelists uh, from this conference. And our guest right now is Catherine Breckis, and she is Professor of Religions in America and the History of Christianity at the University of Chicago. Uh, Catherine Breckis, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you very much for inviting me. What I've been doing uh, to place this in the context of the conference has been to ask each of my guests, in the context of this broad topic of the Bible and democracy in America, what is it that you bring to this particular conversation from your background and your, your academic expertise? So I'm an American religious historian, and most of my research focuses on the 18th and 19th centuries, my research and my teaching so I think the reason that I was invited to this conference is to provide some historical context for um, both the um, uh, the separation of church and state um, and a, a deeper understanding of the place of the Bible in American culture um, from the early days forward. Well, when we talk about this concept of the separation of church and state, I think that, that – uh 
we could find a broad diversity of opinions and not all of them would be informed opinions about what that term means. So when you use the term the separation of church and state, how technically do you understand that as applying to our constitutional democracy? I'm I'm really talking here about the First Amendment, um, which says the Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, that's the first clause, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, which is the second clause. Um, and uh, I think where historians differ from the American public is that historians have a deeper understanding of how contested the First Amendment was and how difficult it was to achieve. Um, I think the the myth of America's founding is that the Puritans and the Pilgrims came here fleeing religious persecution and that their intention was to found a, a, a sort of um, place in the wilderness where they could practice their religion freely. Um, and in some respects, of course, that's true. But they really only wanted to practice their own religion freely. They did not intend for other people um, to be able to practice theirs freely. So the Puritans, for example, when they arrived here, they created laws um, forbidding other religions. Um, they did have a separation of church and state in the sense that they did not allow ministers to hold public office. But they thought the government should be founded on Christian principles and that the ministers were actually a very important part of instilling morality and, and creating a kind of virtuous commonwealth. So um, I think the way we imagine the Puritans now is that uh, uh, they, they created religious liberty and that sort of flowed naturally into um, the Constitution, but in fact um, – uh, Puritans could be quite intolerant, and actually most of the religious people who founded colonies were the same. So every colony in early America had, or almost every colony, had an established church that people were required to pay taxes to. So in New England, um, the Puritans were dominant. Um, they were Congregationalists, so the Congregationalist church was established. And that meant that everybody who lived in Massachusetts, for example, had to pay taxes to support um, the Congregationalist ministers. The same was true in the South, but for the Anglican Church. So the Anglicans were established in the South, and uh, they required everybody to pay taxes to them. So there was a pretty close linkage between church and state in most of the colonies um, Rhode Island was a real exception. Rhode Island was founded by Roger Williams, who was actually kicked out of Massachusetts Bay uh, for saying some heretical things. And uh, he decided he was going to found a colony where there was complete liberty of conscience. But that was really very rare. So if we look at this sort of seed crystal, the narrative that, that we oftentimes hear repeated is that America was founded as a, as a Christian nation. But what exactly that means, and you've already begun to, to bring out some of the complexities of this, that means in one sense that, uh, that in each of the colonies, a particular flavor of Christianity had hegemony, had, had sort of pride of place. Pushing against that, we have some enlightenment notions. I, I recently reread John Locke's first letter concerning toleration. But even when I was rereading this, I was surprised to see that Locke's toleration had certain limits. He was still pretty nervous about the Catholics, mm -hmm. and uh, he doesn't speak too too politely about 
his word, the Mohammedans and all that. And <laughs> that so, was the word in the 18th the, century. And, uh, and so we've, we've got, you know, a, a notion, a gesture towards toleration, but, but still limitations. But we can also look to another strand, something like uh, Jefferson's letter to the Virginia Baptists, the, the, the notion of protecting minority religious liberty in America. When we when we have this dominant narrative of America being founded as a Christian nation and this strand as well of this political history of protecting religious minorities, how do you see that playing out from that long history into the present day? How are we doing – let's, let's take, a, let's take a, a report card. How are we doing on protecting uh, minority religions now in the, in the face of what is still a dominant religion of Christianity in America? I think we do much better than people did in the 18th century, but clearly this is still a contested issue. You brought up the example of Catholics and um, uh, toleration. There was a Toleration Act in 1689 in England that extended uh, religious toleration to all groups except for Catholics. Um, there were very few Catholics in the colonies, but they were sort of the you know the specter against which Protestants define themselves. Um, there were Catholics in Maryland, and it's really a tragic story there where Maryland was founded. Um, as a refuge for Catholics, but the number of um, Protestant immigrants outnumbered Catholics very quickly. And so this colony that was founded as a, a refuge for Catholics ended up passing laws forbidding Catholics to hold office, to vote, and they had to worship um, privately in their houses. We don't have anything like that now. I mean, now I think discrimination... Uh, uh, is is found more on the level of sort of public opinion so that Muslims, I think, today, for example, feel very strongly that they're not considered, that their religion is not considered as valid as other religions, but they're not actually prohibited from participating in politics, for example, or holding office. Even after the First Amendment in um, 1791, uh, the First Amendment only applied to the national government. It did not apply to states. And so um, into the 19th century, there were states that had laws, for example, saying that you could not hold public office unless you were willing to swear that you believed in God. Um, and then this is the funny part. A number of them had laws saying that you had to swear that you believed in a future state of reward or punishment, which I think was designed to um, remind people that their political actions could be punished in hell. <laughs> so this was a way to try to ensure a virtuous political system that you had politicians who believed that there was an after life. Um, but so uh, the attainment of religious freedom, I think, has been a kind of piecemeal process. It's been very slow over time. There were uh, uh, church establishments that remained in states um, into the 1830s. The very last state to disestablish its church was Massachusetts, which makes sense. That was the original Puritan colony. They were sort of the most wedded to the idea of a, a unity between church and state. Um, by 1833, they had uh, created kind of a, a system of multiple um, assessments so that you could ask that your taxes be given to a different church. If you're a Baptist, you could say, I would like my tax money to go to the Baptist church. 
but there wasn't an option not to give money at all to a church. You you had to be something, or I guess you didn't have to practice something, but you did have to give money um, to some church. Um, so uh, uh, this changed with the 14th Amendment, which was really about slavery, but uh, slavery that slavery amendment ended up incorporating the Bill of Rights into the states. And the states then were not allowed to um, discriminate on the basis of religion. Um, But clearly these uh, conflicts over what role um, uh, religion should play in politics, for example, what role religious um, ideas and practices should play in our nation today, that's very much still alive. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Catherine Breckis. She is professor of religion in America and the history of Christianity at the University of Chicago. And we're speaking today in the context of the co-sponsored event with the American Bible Society and Wheaton College on the Bible and democracy in America. This actually points towards something that I've, I've been wondering about for a long time, and that is when we think about the, the history of religious tolerance in America, is it more proper to say that the First Amendment was designed to protect the plurality of Christian expressions, or was it designed to protect the plurality of religious expression generally? Um, this is a complicated question because I think um, almost everybody in the early colonies um, was Christian. Um, But there is a famous letter from George Washington to a group of Jews in Newport assuring them that um, this applied to them as well and that all religions were welcome. Um, But in fact, most people in um, early America were Christian. I think it's worth emphasizing that they didn't necessarily agree on what that meant. So, you know, an, an Anglican and a Puritan did not think they had a lot in common and really, you know, fought. Uh, sometimes bitterly against each other. There were a lot of um, arguments within Christianity. Um, But from our perspective, when we look backward, I think what we see is you know, the, um, a, a kind of shared, um, a shared Christian culture that they were arguing about. And in fact, I think the reason the arguments were so fierce is that they were um, they were really arguing about, for example, how to interpret the Bible, um, who Jesus was, how to understand God. Um, at the same time, it's important to recognize that um, even in the 18th century, there was a whole mosaic of um, uh, religious people so that there were Native Americans who were practicing their traditional religions. There were slaves who were still practicing traditional African religions. There were um, Muslim slaves as well. Um, there's a small group of Jews. And of course, um, there are, are deists and a lot of the founders um, would have, uh, I think, identified with that where um, they did believe in a God, but a God who was somewhat separate or disconnected from the universe that God had created. Uh, the image they often used was that God was like a clockmaker or a watchmaker who had created this instrument and then just sat back and watched it run. So it was not a God who you would pray to to intervene in um, you know, a personal situation. Um, but uh, a number of the founders, like like Franklin and Jefferson and Washington, seem to have a sense of a a benevolent force guiding the universe, just not a traditional 
Christian image of of Jesus as being God. So interesting. So what I'm hearing you saying is that is that on the ground there was a plurality. It was a small plurality, but it was there. And we have some historical documentation saying that that plurality was at least on the minds of some of the the founders uh, something that should be protected. Definitely. At the same time. Um, Even the founders who were skeptical about Christianity, Jefferson, for example, um, were fearful of uh, not having any sort of religious foundation in the New Republic at all. And um, they were most concerned uh, less with personal belief than with um, morality. And they saw Christianity as a bulwark for morality. I think it's hard for us to imagine what it must have been like for those people standing on the, you know, the the cusp of this new nation and wondering whether it would survive. And one of the um, uh, reassuring things I think for uh, for many Americans was the sense that well, uh, what we share are some um, Christian convictions and. Um, we do share some ideas about what is um, what's good and what's bad, and the republic can only survive if citizens are virtuous. Democracy can't exist if um, you don't have a, a virtuous citizenry. So, um, at the same time that uh, there were um, there were many. Uh, Christians as well as deists who defended the principle um, of the separation of church and state, uh, that didn't mean that they imagined that Christianity was not going to be very central to the republic. And in fact, some of them really felt as if the republic wouldn't be able to survive unless there was a strong Christian foundation that linked people together, some kind of shared culture. What's interesting about that, as you mentioned, Jefferson and his his skepticism about religion, but at the same time his feeling that somehow there needed to be a, a religious basis so that the virtue that would make democracy cohere would be there, that brings to mind immediately this curious thing that he did with his own Bible where he, he took a razor blade to it and cut out all of the mystical bits and left behind sort of the ethical pieces of the New Testament. And so when we speak about the kind of vision for a virtue and a basis for society, we aren't really talking about the full panoply of of New Testament vision, are we? No, not at all. Um, Jefferson uh, took out the miracles, for example, and what he was most interested in was um, Jesus as an ethical teacher, Jesus as a guide to how to live a moral life. and that was the Jesus that he was most wedded to. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Catherine Breckis. She's professor of religion in America and the history of Christianity at the University of Chicago. We're having our conversation today in the context of a co-sponsored event at Wheaton College uh, with the American Bible Society on the Bible and democracy in America. Well, as a historian, and particularly as a historian of, of religion and Christianity, you you have a long view, uh, perhaps a longer view than, than even some of the political scientists and others that I've been talking to today. And so as we look at this 227-year uh, experiment, I, my math is a little – but it's, it's more than 200 years. It's a century and a quarter, give or take. Uh, as we look at this experiment uh, – 
both in democracy but also in religious toleration. You, you mentioned that you think that, that we're doing better than we were doing in the 1880s. But the 1780s. Sorry, the 1780s. Yeah. What, what, what are the impediments that still stand in place from the full realization of, of the, the ideals of the First Amendment? Um, I, I think that uh, where we run into trouble is when religious people across the spectrum somehow want their own faith to have privileges that others do not um, or that they – uh, sometimes the slogan, a Christian nation, can be very exclusionary. Um, uh, and in fact, I mean, I, I I think it's interesting that, you know, this language tends to appear when Christians are most nervous about um, the arrival of new immigrants, for example, or um, the, the growing plurality of uh, religions in America. And so the there's a sort of desire to say no. America is is Christian, um, and today, uh, you know, I, I think that's um, I think probably the majority of Americans still identify with Christianity, but we are a very very pluralistic country. So I think that where we, you know, where we have our moments of of failure or uh, where our civility fails is when we have groups who are saying. You know, somehow uh, uh, we were here first, and that gives us some kind of special claim. Um, I think that you know the the reason I like being a historian is that I do see things in this much longer time frame, and I I don't think that a lot of people um, you know know that much about what it was like for Americans um, before the First Amendment and the kind of real persecution that happened. Um, and in that sense, I guess I, you know, I, I really prize um, the American experiment. I also have the sense of how precarious it is and fragile and how much it needs to be protected and shored up. If you go back into the 17th century, the Puritans, for example, hated the Quakers and hanged for them on the Boston Common. Um, in the 18th century, Baptists were among the most zealous proponents of the First Amendment because they were so persecuted. Um, I, I think Baptists themselves remember that today, but I'm not sure that most Americans know that there was a time when Baptists were put in prison, where um, they were harassed, where people broke up their meetings. Um, there are many reports from Virginia, for example, where Baptists were making major incursions in the 1770s and 1780s of uh, of their enemies, um, you know, almost kidnapping Baptist ministers and plunging them into the water and almost drowning them in a, in a kind of mockery of um, adult full immersion baptism. So, um, so Baptists were at the forefront of the arguments for disestablishment, not because they didn't want Christianity to be important in the republic, but because um, they realized that without those protections that some Christians were going to be privileged over others. Um, so it's, it's one of the oddities, I think, of um, the American experiment in religious freedom that the two major groups that were supporting the First Amendment were evangelicals like the Baptists and deists like Thomas Jefferson, who in every other respect did not get along. Um, and the reasons for supporting the First Amendment were different. I think Jefferson was afraid that 
religion, or as he sometimes said, priestcraft, would corrupt the state, Baptists were afraid of the opposite. They were afraid that the state was going to corrupt religion, that they did not want government to have any control over what they were doing. They believed that they had to have complete liberty of conscience and no interference where um, uh, a politician was telling them how to worship or what to do. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is University of Chicago Professor Catherine Breckis. Dr. Breckis is Professor in Religions in America and the History of Christianity at the Divinity School and is part of the Associate Faculty in the Department of History. She's the author of Strangers and Pilgrims, Female Preaching in America, 1740 to 1845. You can find out more about Catherine Breckis and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is University of Chicago Professor Catherine Breckis. Dr. Breckis is Professor of Religions in America and the History of Christianity in the Divinity School and is part of the Associate Faculty in the Department of History. She's the author of Strangers and Pilgrims, Female Preaching in America, 1740 to 1845. You can find out more about Catherine Breckis and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. As you look at our current political landscape, and particularly in the context of the, the fractured brokenness of our political discourse currently, the deadlock that we have in Congress, I've been asking this question of everybody that I've been speaking to. What is it that gives you uh, the most pause and nervousness and then what is it that gives you the most hope and optimism as we as we look forward? I, I suppose where I get most nervous is where people try to use the Bible or Christianity more generally as a kind of weapon against their enemies. I find that very distressing. I think it's um, harmful in, in many ways. Um, I guess where I see hope, and I'm mostly an optimist, um, is that uh, there there are common values. There, are, I think, there are ways that, um, for example, you know, more conservative Christians and more liberal Christians can agree. And if it is true that um, you know the the majority of Americans remain identified with the Christian tradition. Um, I do think that there is enough in common and that I guess there should be among Christians a spirit of hope and forgiveness that can that can lead to conversations that bridge those divides. Well, Catherine Breckis, I, I wish that we had more time, but I very much appreciate you being with us today, and thank you very much. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. As I mentioned, this is part of a series of interviews I conducted at the Bible and Democracy in America conference held last October at Wheaton College and co-sponsored by the American Bible Society. You can find out more about the conference and the work of the American Bible Society at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com/thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. 
If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcast, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we've got all of them archived on our website, so if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore all of them, just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, Katie Scroggin discusses Martha C. Nussbaum's book, Political Emotions, Why Love Matters for Justice. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. In this context of discussions about the Bible and democracy, it seems appropriate to include a review of some recent work by University of Chicago law and ethics professor Martha Nussbaum. Nussbaum's career has been spent in the pursuit of an answer to the basic question, how can we achieve a just society? How can we, in effect, work together for the common good? Nussbaum furthers this inquiry in her recent book, Political Emotions, Why Love Matters for Justice. Katie Scroggin offers this review. No society or form of government is ever perfect, and at present, U.S. governance seems particularly broken, with politicians, the media, and the public apparently unable even to have a mature conversation with each other, much less figure out how best to live together. And so Martha C. Nussbaum's recent book on how to reform political interaction— Political Emotions, Why Love Matters for Justice, is especially timely. Nussbaum alleges that even with a good system of laws and institutions in place, and even with respect for them and each other, no society will ever be truly just if it is unable to infuse its politics with love. By political love, Nussbaum does not mean dismissing reason, holding hands, and tiptoeing around each other to maintain a conflict-free niceness. Rather, she points to an attachment committed to the well-being not only of those in our immediate circles, or even in our own country, but eventually to the world in general. But although such love should eventually encompass the entire world, to feel enough of an attachment to motivate us toward that end, Nussbaum says that we must first feel committed to something we feel is both ours and that does not exist anywhere else, a single, unrepeatable instantiation of the thing we love. Hence, we can feel a sense of love for our country because it is ours and because we feel uniquely at home in it, a place that gives us a sense of emotional security and comfort unlike any other place could provide. But at the same time, Nussbaum says, we must allow this particular love to be open to the rest of the world instead of shutting ourselves off in fear that the object of our devotion will be taken from us or in disgust at what is unlike us. Our particular love should help us empathize with others' attachments and work in a concentrated effort with those others for a world in which our loves can survive and thrive. Nussbaum admits that her vision of what such a world would look like is largely based on the political liberalism of John Rawls, who emphasized, quote, that equal respect for citizens requires that a nation not build its political principles on any particular comprehensive doctrine of the meaning and basis of life, whether religious or secular. Instead, citizens should be guided by what he called an overlapping consensus, a situation in which narrow and shallow political principles allow us both to live together according to our own deeper or metaphysical convictions, and to respect each other enough to allow others to remain true to their own ideas about the ultimate nature of reality. Although Rawls is central for Nussbaum, she also realizes that he often does not acknowledge or frequently seems devoid of the emotion needed to sustain such commitments. 
Political Emotions works to fill out this gap in political liberalism, describing both what we should be striving for and how we should be striving for it, via recourse not only to the work of political thinkers from Auguste Comte and John Stuart Mill to Gandhi, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Martin Luther King Jr., and Jawaharlal Nehru. Nussbaum also fills in these thinkers' insights, often uninformed by full understandings of human development, by looking at current theories on that development, theories which examine and explain why humans need love and how we are conditioned to respond to fear and the unfamiliar. This examination might make us more aware of the pitfalls of a general human interaction with the world when moving toward a vision of justice. Nussbaum also backs up her insistence on the necessary presence of the emotions by examining literature and poetry, the designs of public parks and monuments, and music. It's in this final realm that Nussbaum finds a model of the attitude she's seeking, namely the character of Cherubino from Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. Rejecting the jealous and possessive world of the opera's control and power-hungry male protagonists, the youth Cherubino opts for a more playful, generous, and forgiving existence displayed by the female characters. Nussbaum shows how such an approach to life has been and can be used in justice work by looking at Rabindranath Tagore's school, Santiniketan, in which expectations of gender, caste, and class were overthrown in favor of an inclusive acceptance of diversity and justice in community. In line with this sensibility, Nussbaum also points to the spirit of connection inherent in public art such as the Cloud Gate in Chicago's Millennium Park, a sculpture that unites people through a shared experience of comically distorted reflections of themselves, allowing viewers to set aside their defenses in front of each other, the author stresses, though, that although these models may be adapted for other audiences, they can't simply be removed from their context and reproduced as is within completely different circumstances. Nussbaum has obviously given extensive thought to the question of how we might create atmospheres and attitudes conducive to the construction and maintenance of fair and thriving communities, and this project displays that very openness to a variety of sources and forms of interaction that it advocates. In short, the book is full of good ideas. But in spite of her efforts to make Rawlsian liberalism more emotionally attractive, she doesn't quite succeed. This is probably due to the fact that her appeal to the emotions is carried out through logical argumentation and an elaboration of the science behind feeling, even if that argumentation is dressed up with reference to the arts and quotes charismatic speakers and leaders. Especially representative of the conflict between intent and method of delivery is the appendix included at the end of the book, a summary of the emotional theory the author developed in an earlier work essentially breaking down the emotions into explainable parts, I was left feeling as if I'd just read an instruction manual. I don't know that there's any way out of this impasse, and I don't want to devalue Nussbaum's work with a criticism that has nothing to do with the soundness of its assertions. But where potential readers are concerned, I would predict that the emotional charge Nussbaum wants us to feel after reading her book will probably happen for the sort of person who studied literature in college out of a love of theory and analysis— but the person who studied the same topic because of inability to put a book down before finding out what happens to the heroine will probably walk away feeling inspired by some of the quotations and examples the author uses, but not by the book itself. And so my final verdict on political emotions is that although it's less emotionally inspiring than it might have hoped to be, the book is definitely worthy of consideration, maybe even essential if we're to take up the real, not always inspiring work involved in improving our world and the lives we lead within it. Katie Scroggin is an independent scholar and translator. She lives in Texas. She reviewed Political Emotions, Why Love Matters for Justice by Martha Nussbaum. 
Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC. Today's show was recorded at WETN on the campus of Wheaton College. WETN is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in Fredericksburg, Texas, and at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. David Dalt engineered the show. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Alexander Beck.